This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Kirsty Melville here with the History Listen. And the first in our summer season of stories, which at their heart are all about music. From the Australians behind the accidental birth of computer-generated music to the lyrical prose inspired by the wild west coast of Tasmania, you're in for a dreamy, foot-tapping, hip-swaying summer listen. But first up, a little-known story set against the backdrop of Federation in Australia. When dawn broke over the east coast of Australia, on the first day of the 20th century, there were more than 100 African-American entertainers on our shores. Who were they? And what brought them here? Composer and broadcaster from our sister network, ABC Classics' Stephanie Kabunyana Kanyandakwe tells the intriguing tale of one of these performers, Hosea Easton. And just a warning that there is a tiny bit of sensitive language used in the episode that is of its time. As a Rwandan composer and art music performer, I am fired up to share with you one of the early stories of African performers here in Australia. And I put the last name in, Easton. And the first name, Hosea. Waverley Cemetery in Sydney's east is a hillside of marble angels and multilingual epitaphs tumbling down to the sea. And I'm here with historian Deirdre O'Connell. Hosea Easton, 45, date of death, it doesn't have a, a date of internment. We gaze at an app yeah, in these so modern days to guide us to the final resting place of Easton. View on map. Where are we? Oh, there we are. I believe we're heading towards the sea. Yes, we are. And we're probably marching the same path that the uh, funeral procession went all those years ago. Hosea Easton, or Hosey, as he was affectionately known, first came to Australia in 1877 with a troupe of African-American performers called the Georgia Minstrels. Minstrel first by the Georgia Minstrels. Gentlemen, be seated. Matt Whitman is curator of the Harvard Theatre Collection. Initially, you know, they were very successful because they were such a big novelty. People in Australia and New Zealand had only ever seen white people pretending to be black, and so the the quote-unquote genuine article is how they build themselves. When they arrive, there's a lot of intense interest to see what is different about an African-American minstrel show. The fun seems to escape from them without design. They sing as if they sang to please themselves and enjoyed it. They keep the audience in a state of laughing excitement from beginning to end. The Australasian. Their first landing point in Australia is actually Hobart. They're hugely successful there. There's accounts of people coming to the docks to wave the troop, wave at the troop as they leave town. And so um, there's an attraction there, um, there's a freedom there that they don't necessarily have when they tour in the United States. It was more than 10 years since the end of the Civil War, but if you were black, it was still hard to get a gig. And in the South, it was almost impossible. When you think about, like, say, Northern black musicians going down South, oh my gosh. You know, like you couldn't even get food. You couldn't even stay places. 
Rhiannon Giddens has become an internationally acclaimed banjo virtuoso and founder of the bands Carolina Chocolate Drops and Our Native Daughters. So I would see the attraction of going somewhere else. And maybe it's difficult because it's a long way away and it's a new place and everything, but you're not dealing with, you know, if they've brought you halfway across the world, are they going to make you, you know, go in the back door mm. and, and eat in the kitchen? The minstrel tradition was created by white performers, New Yorkers, Northerners who'd never actually been to the South, and they're kind of imitating what they think is uh, black life. And by the mid-19th century, it is the most popular form of uniquely American form of entertainment, and it's the main vehicle by which popular music is disseminated. Minstrel shows featured the fiddle, the piano, rhythm sticks called the bones, and the banjo. But today, we associate the banjo with folk and country music derived from Western European cultures, white people's music, but its roots are black. The banjo as we know it was crafted, created, in the Caribbean by people of African descent, and it's directly related to instrumental ancestors. Like, there's a lot of different sort of spike gourd lutes that exist in West Africa, which of course are tied to the larger movement of instruments from from the East and the Middle East into Europe and in Africa, you know? 100 years later, it travels north with enslaved people to the United States. to the 1830s and 40s, it's really a black instrument. But what happens is in the 18, early 1800s, the 1830s, 40s, it moves from black culture to white culture. So as soon as white people pick it up, it immediately becomes part of the minstrel show. But the music that's going into that, a lot of the music is this cross-cultural collaborative sort of Creole music that's coming out of Black and European mixing amongst working-class people. And back then, the style of banjo playing was closer to its African roots, as you can hear in this recording by Rhiannon Giddens. These early Black minstrel players were all learned from Black people. We call it claw hammer today, but back then it was called stroke style, and it was a very different thing. For me, this early style is much more polyrhythmic. It's much more West African sort of rhythmic and melodic. And that right there is the kind of banjo playing that Hosea Easton brought to Australia with the Georgia Minstrels. Are we turning up or are we continuing straight? to look um, at our little blue oh, dot there, there, on yeah, the map. Yeah, yeah. So we're so closer. So there's a bend and mm -hmm. then we go, seems like we go down there and across there. So to the sea. There was no question that he was the best banjo player, the most brilliant banjo player ever to arrive on these shores. Jose was born into freedom, not slavery. He came from an extraordinary family in Connecticut who'd actually been free for generations. He grew up in this very kind of musical, political, bohemian world. 
His grandfather was a very well-known abolitionist, orator, and a congregationalist minister. And his father, Samson, was a very well-known musician. Uh, his father's Academy of Music sometimes bled into being a, a, a dance hall and um, there's a few kind of accounts of, you know, police raids and things like that. Each year, an African-American troupe called the Georgia Minstrels would tour Hartford, Connecticut. And one year, when they left, Hosea left with them. And that's how he came to Australia, touring with their minstrel show. It was a minstrel show, but it was very different to the white minstrel shows Australian audiences were used to. Referring to the method of making blackface paint at that time, posters advertising their shows announced, no burnt corks here. A straight up code switch for we're not white folks doing blackface, we are the black folk. African-Americans didn't want to perform minstrelsy, but that was one of the few routes available to them if they wanted to perform on stage. So there's just this weird dynamic where, you know, if you play banjo and you want to make money, you have to play in minstrel shows, but they're denigrating caricatures of your community. And so there's this, you know, awkward dynamic that all of these performers have to manage of performing a stereotype, but in doing so you know, trying to call attention to it, trying to transform that stereotype. And so you know, one of the things that Easton, with his talent, his kind of virtuosity is able to do is audiences begin to realize that how bad kind of white representations of African-American culture were in minstrelsy, right? And so gradually minstrelsy morphs into something different. And by the early 20th century, uh, in some sense, African-Americans are liberated from this kind of pernicious white imagination about what black life was. They don't pander to this nostalgia that enslaved people were happy on their plantations in the South. They celebrate the moment of emancipation. They dip into Jubilee songs, which are the songs of freedom. Fry observation, they even adapted their minstrel show for Australian audiences with sketches called The Squatter and a Toff's Banquet. After two years touring Australia and New Zealand, the Georgia minstrels head home, but Isaiah stays in Sydney to make life as a performer and teacher. And there's one photo of him from this time that Matt Whitman found deep in the archives in Christchurch. It's this wonderful, elegant photo of Easton posed in a doorway, sitting uh, in this wonderful checkered suit with a tie and uh, an SS Stewart banjo. It's a kind of unvarnished look that you, you rarely get of someone of this era, of that background. Well, an unvarnished look, but a very polished suit. I mean, that checkered suit image, what does that tell us about a guy like Hosea Easton? Uh, it, it certainly suggests that he's doing pretty well for himself at that point. Um, and certainly, you know, his decision to stay in Australia after the 1877 tour suggests that he found a kind of, I don't know, happiness or success in, in, in Australia that he 
you know, couldn't find in the United States. Hosea Easton manipulates the banjo and maintains a running fire of funnyisms during the process of tuning, which are amusing. His home sweet home with variations brought out the music of the instrument. Brisbane Courier, 1st of March, 1878. He was part of the growth and establishment of a popular theatre in Australia. Uh, he would get up and do hilarious monologues. Often he would push the boundaries of decorum by kind of mocking religion and the temperance movement. very gifted and well-studied musician. He's said to have played every instrument in the orchestra. He arranged, he composed and... He also talks about how he was introducing the banjo to orchestral arrangements and he talks about how that it, it kind of comes through, it cuts through. You can hear the sound of it and even in subtle ways. Then there's a whole series of small social clubs where he would also feature his own compositions. And so I imagine that was a more kind of bohemian, theatrical, music-y crowd. What a merry crew the Bunyip Boys Social Club are. When they meet to entertain visitors at Carter's Hotel, life's enchanted cup sparkles at the brim with liquors hot and rebellious. The banjo was in the hands of Mr. Hosea Easton, a man who has the reputation of bubbling with darky humour. 30th January, 1886, the South Yarra Guardian. Along here, um, the east, this kind of stretch of the eastern suburbs, I mean, it's so densely built up these days. But back in the 1890s, it was a it was a tourist resort, you know, styled on the English seaside broadwalk, and there was uh, music and entertainment. And Hosea often played there on weekends and uh, to entertain the day trippers. I believe he was married to a number of Australian women. Yeah, he had two Australian wives. Um, the first one, uh, it seemed like it dissolved pretty quickly mm -hmm. by 1880. And then he settled down with another woman. She had a fish shop. She had a fish shop in the heart of, of town and she was known to kind of rule with an iron fist. <laughs> she was a formidable lady is uh, the, the description of her I have. So I can only imagine what a combination those two people would have been. <laughs> Sydney ciders were crazy for minstrel music. Hosea taught the banjo and was also involved with the American Banjo Club. He showed Walter Stent, who ran the American Banjo Club, how to play in that claw hammer picking style. There's this sketch. Hosea is playing the banjo happily with a cigar in his mouth. And uh, next to him is Walter Stent, busily writing it down, transcribing his work. In 
fact, that book by Walter Stent was a transcription of many teachings of Hosea Easton. And so, Hosey's instruction forms the first guide to playing the banjo in Australia, which is then picked up by folk enthusiasts. That happened here as well as in the US, and yet this piece that we're listening to now that appeared in the Walter Stent Guide is the only published composition, well, attributed to Hosey, that we have. An excerpt from Scottish Ecstasy by Hosea Easton, with performance from Alice Keith. to play than it looks on paper. Let me tell you, Hosea Easton is showing his deep understanding of mandolin art music from the classical era and something that he incorporates like only great banjoists could into his own composition. And what kind of relationship do these African-American performers have with local BIPOC or black, indigenous, people of colour. In their letters home, some performers describe meeting West Indian, South Asian and Aboriginal people here. And in New Zealand, there were eventually some Maori minstrel shows and dialogue between them and the visiting performers. Certainly there was some recognition there between Maori and African-Americans that both were in a way marginalized within the societies in which they lived. This comes up more later in the context of the Fist Jubilee Singers, which are a kind of activist African-American singing group that tours through Australia and New Zealand in the 1880s and into the 1890s. And there's certainly a recognition between the group and some of the Maori activists they meet of their kind of common cause. The Fisk Jubilee Singers also brought moving African-American spirituals into tiny town halls in regional Australia. In 1886, when the Fisk Jubilee Singers performed in the town of Echuca in Victoria, they also gave a special concert for the local Aboriginal community at the Maloga Mission. Um, they received a great welcome from the, the Aboriginal people who afterwards, according to Frederick J. Loudon, the leader of the Fisk Singers, they followed them for mile after mile on the road, cheering them and farewelling them. Bill Egan is author of the book African-American Entertainers in Australia and New Zealand. The following year, uh, 1887, the local media reported that the local Yorta Yorta people had given a concert in which they performed spirituals in the style of the Fisk Singers. That tradition continued into 1938, when again there was a media report that the local community had given a concert 
in part of which they included songs from the Jubilee Singers. One of those songs was number eight in the Jubilee Singers songbook, Turn Back Pharaoh's Army, which they performed in their own Yorta Yorta language as Ningara Bura Pharaoh. One of the people involved in that concert was Jimmy Little Sr., the father of the well-known Yorta Yorta singer Jimmy Little. Subsequently, the girl soul singing group, the Sapphires, who were also Yorta Yorta members, went to Vietnam to entertain the Australian troops, and one of their songs they included was the Turn Back Pharaoh's Army song. Jessica Malboy sang that song, Nara Bora Fera, in the film The Sapphires, and it's still sung by school groups across southeastern Australia. And through the 1880s and 90s, African-American performers kept coming here and Hosea kept touring with them, from Kalgoorlie through to Kyneton. The American coloured minstrels, under the management of the veteran Hosea Easton, arrived yesterday. And during the afternoon, the band, led by a drum major wearing ponderous headgear, paraded the streets playing some very excellent music. 24th of August, 1889, the Kyneton Oracle. And then at the turn of the century, here and in cities like New York, a more syncopated sound called ragtime replaced minstrelsy as popular music. And there were also big changes going on in the rural south. Black banjo playing was shrinking into the shadows, virtually forgotten until Rhiannon Giddens found one of the last remaining black banjo players. There is no sickness, toil, no danger. There's, there's this idea, oh, oh, because of minstrelsy, black people stop playing the banjo. That's just not true. But I think what was also going on is that black culture is always moving forward. And then you have the massive migration in the early part of the 1900s. So there's this mass movement of culture that's going from rural to urban. And the banjo was uh, in part a victim of that because it, it has a very specific rural place as it was. And if you're in a city, you're what's happening here? What's the new stuff? Ooh, blues, this is great. You know what I mean? So mm. there's that going on. And then there's at the same time, white supremacists attempts to create a white cultural ethnic identity, you know, and it's tied to the you know, the discovery of these ballads in the mountains, these English and Scottish and Irish ballads and square dance and the banjo and the fiddle and this is our thing mm. and it's not, you know, and black people just moved on. And the people who were still playing it, just, you know, like Joe Thompson, my mentor, like was still playing banjo and fiddle music and, the, and you know, people are kind of forgetting completely that that exists, you know? So all of these things are happening at the same time. Oh, oh. Hosea Easton, a banjo picker who came over here 10 years ago with the Georgia Minstrels, died Thursday, June 15, and was buried the following Saturday. A letter home 
from a member of an African-American band performing in Sydney when Hosey died. The funeral procession would have taken the better part of a day to walk from the centre of Sydney out to Waverley Cemetery. Our band turned out and played the dirge for the funeral procession and also played at the cemetery, which is one of the most beautiful I have ever saw. It is located on one side of the ocean and you can look right out on the deep blue sea from which the refreshing breezes and poetic zephyrs are wafted to the feverish brow. In affectionate memory of our old brother artist, Hosea Easton, who died 23rd June, 1899, 46 years. Erected by a few friends and his brother and sister artists of Mr. Rickard's Tivoli Theatre. Oh, beautiful, huh? By naming this edifice to him, brother artist, and, and calling themselves sisters and brothers, they're saying as well that he was so deeply loved. There was 2,000 people uh, uh, came to the funeral, according to one account. It was just the strength of his talent and skill as a performer and the kind of joy that he brought to so many people. And I sometimes think how diverse that group of 2,000 people might have been. Mm. You know, just before he died, there were benefits at um, Kwong Tart's Emporium, mm. which is in the... Um, so I, I wonder if there was even elements of the Chinese community there. And, and I imagine there would have been indigenous Sydney-siders too uh, along because the, the, that kind of group of non-white uh, performers and uh, residents, you know, they, they, they knew each other and... Uh, you band together. The time that Hosea Easton passed was a pivot point in Australian history. One of the observers did describe it as a passing of an era, and when he said that, he meant the passing of the minstrel era. In hindsight, it's quite quite clear that the passing of the era was that in two years' time, the newly federated Australia would pass uh, the Immigration Exclusion Act, which is known as the White Australia Policy. And musicians of Hosea's kind were not so welcome. By the 20s, the uh, Musicians' Union of Australia had uh, passed a no-coloured members rule that was in place until 19. 1953, 1953, Louis Armstrong, when the uh, Musicians' Union was basically shamed into overturning their no-coloured membership rule. As an African migrant, composer, art music performer, in making this program, I've learnt just how much African diasporic culture, once informed, was loved, then appropriated. While we like so many other cultures, were then shut out and told to go home when Australia federated. That reveals an even deeper laying of the roots of contemporary racism in the arts in Australia and indeed the nation more broadly. And at the very end of my interview with Rhiannon, she floored me with something that seared my soul even more. Wasn't like an Australian prime minister in a minstrel, like a black-faced minstrel band? That is... I saw a picture. <gasps> 
That is a story I don't know, but I will certainly look into it for you, that's for sure. And for my own brain living in this country, I look forward to, to finding out. I, it's a guy named Arthur Fadden, the 13th Prime Minister of Australia, who was once a member of the acting troupe in Mackay called the Nigger Minstrel Troupe. So, and there's a picture of, I knew I, I had stumbled across this um, some time ago, so I found it online. And they're like, holy moly, you know, top hats, black faces, banjo, you know, prime minister, there you go, all the way in Australia. So it's, uh, it's really fascinating. We looked into it, and it's also facts. Brother artist Hosea Easton was presented by Stephanie Cabanyana Kunyandakwe. It was produced by Claudia Taranto, with technical production by Bella Tropiano, and thanks to Deidre O'Connell. I'm Kirsty Melville, and I'll catch you for another summer season music special next time on the History Listen. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.